Hi, I'm Trey Mitchell, and you're listening to Beating the Senses Uncensored. If it's your first time, welcome. If you're returning, thanks for coming back. We are always looking for new sponsors, so please reach out, ftsunashville at gmail.com. Don't forget to download, subscribe, and share. Our guest on this episode of Feeding the Senses Uncensored is Jamie Anderson. She is an eclectic, crafty, creative entity, a graphic designer, web designer, photographer, event designer, master gardener, and community connector. When I wake up in the morning, one of the first things I do is think about how many more days it is to the Tennessee State Fair so I can get my entries ready to win those blue ribbons. When I first moved here, I didn't know that much about state fairs. I'd been to the Kentucky State Fair and knew that you could win ribbons. So I decided I'm a kind of an amateur photographer. I'm going to go enter some photography in the state fair. I was intimidated a little bit because when you think about entering a statewide competition, it's like there's so many people, there's so many photographs, but I entered my photographs and I actually got best of show in amateur black and white. And then I started uh, dating my now husband and I said, you got to get involved in this. You can win ribbons. And it kind of became a friendly competition between us. And it got to a point to where, you know, we were counting who got, how many blue ribbons did you get? We got lots of reds and, and whites, which are awesome as well. But we were all about that blue ribbon count. And so he would enter stuff, I would enter stuff, and whoever won the most ribbons at the end, you know, got the bragging rights that year. Jamie Anderson, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Great. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, like most of my friends that I have on the podcast and even new people, I either don't see you now or I haven't seen you in a while and I don't know how long it's been, but um, good to hear your voice at least. Yes, exactly. Tell us a little bit about yourself, why you moved to Nashville, when you moved to Nashville. I am a graphic designer by trade, but I do a little bit of everything. I moved to Nashville right before 9-11. I did not know many people when that happened. I believe it was the January of uh, 2001. And I moved here because I had gone to a design conference and saw Jim Sheradden, who worked at Hatch Showprint downtown. And Hatch Showprint is where they made all of the wooden letter posters for old acts and things of that nature. You can see a lot of letterpress posters coming out of Nashville and they mostly came from that shop. And I had met him and he said, why don't you come down and um, work at the shop for a couple of weeks and take a break? And I thought that sounded fantastic because with graphic design, most of the time you're just stuck in front of a computer a lot. And the thought of designing something with my hands really appealed to me because I hadn't really done that since art school. So I came on to Nashville and I worked at Hat Showprint for two or three weeks. And the whole first week he has you putting up type. So I was just putting away alphabets and letters and finding out where all the type was, which was actually genius because when I got ready to design my own poster, I knew where to find everything. Yes, organization does wonders for the creative brain. Yes. And I remember I'd never been to Nashville before in my life. And I drove in and was trying to figure out a place to stay. And I believe I ended up on Murfreesboro Road. And I saw one of those motor courts and it had a big neon sign. It said the Drake Motel, stay where the stars stay. So I immediately checked in. That's awesome. 
you have done photo shoots there, it's a very interesting place. And somewhere in a garage sale, I found when we had the magazine going censored, um, you know, letterpress uh, letters. So when I met you, we'll get to that in a minute, but obviously you do graphic design and web design. And most of my friends were like, oh, she's so creative. What does she do? I don't know. She does everything. Just one of those artsy, crafty kind of people in general. Yes. And actually I was, I was trained as a print designer. And when I went to college, it was called communication design. So basically I was trained to design anything that wants to communicate a message to someone visually. So print was what we mainly did, but we did start dabbling in web. I'm dating myself. And uh, I was a web designer as it emerged. And it was a novelty to find someone who was a print designer and a web designer all in one because it was kind it was a one-stop shop you could get your logo done with me you could get your music packaging done with me and I would do your website so I kind of fell into the music industry and did a lot of design for music artists and album packaging turned into my forte so I did that I also did photography I had an amazing pinhole camera that I loved taking pictures with Um, I was still doing a little bit of film at that time and I remember your film pictures I was always inspired by your work If you can explain, because a lot of people may not understand what a pinhole camera is, can you tell us about that? Sure. A pinhole camera is a box that has a tiny, tiny hole in the front. On the back of the inside of the box, there is what they call a Polaroid back, which means that it exposes a sheet of Polaroid film. And when you move the door covering the pinhole on the pinhole camera, then the image is projected onto the exposed Polaroid film inside the camera on the back wall. And that's where you get your image. You let the exposure go as long as you like. Of course, if you leave the hole uncovered longer, it gets lighter. But then you shut it and then you get your picture. So you have to keep the camera really still. It's a very old, old way of doing photography. And you were about to mention about the you starting film and uh, cross-processing. Yes. When I met you, you were you were taking lots of pictures and you had a process that I really loved. And I think you told me it was called cross-processing, but I can't remember. But I loved it because it made the colors on your photographs really pop. Yeah. Cross-processing is you shoot slide film and you process it as regular negatives. So it you don't have a lot of control over it, but you get some really cool, interesting effects that uh, made every image unique, no matter who shot it or, or what you shot. Yes, I loved that. And when I was taking pictures of clients, I was using you know, like a, a Nikon film camera. And I remember trying to figure out how does he get his colors to look like that? And finally, you, you told me when I asked you about it one time. Yes, and I, I still shoot, but I just don't do it that much anymore. However, that's awesome that you do so many creative things. And a lot of people I've been interviewing, that's kind of the MO right now. I don't know if it's because you have to do so many things to make money and make a living, or if it's like me, I just have like creative ADD and I can't really stick to one thing. I get bored or something and then I have to move on to something else. But again, when I met you, I was like, you're just one of those all around creative people. Yes, and the two things you mentioned I would say probably both of those. It's it's probably why I've always been self-employed too, because I've been able to pick and choose my projects and what kind of projects I wanted to take on and not limited in that way. So I've done everything from 
designing table centerpieces in event design for ballroom dance competitions to art directing a photo shoot, uh, of course, doing music packaging, lots of logo work. I've designed cowboy hats. I've done cowboy boots, um, lots of things, so many things. I can't even remember all of them, but there's, it's, it's a whole lot of fun to go into different areas and design because you're still being creative, but you're using different parts of your brain because everything has a different function. Can you tell us about any of the memorable experiences or memorable artists that you did packaging with or for? Sure. You know, it's interesting when I take on a music client, I always ask to listen to the music first because it's really personal to me when I design music packaging to bond with the music in some way, because my job is to visually express it and to visually make a package that shows you can't really show what music looks like, but visually expresses it in the in the most beautiful way possible. So all of the album packaging that I've done, I've ended up really liking the music because I had to listen to the songs over and over and over while I designed. And if someone's getting like a six panel digipack with a 12 page lyric booklet and the like, you end up listening to their music at least 70 to 100 times over and over. And um, that's kind of fascinating because I know every single lyric to every song for every music package I've ever designed. What's interesting is when I was uh, first, when I first moved here, when I first started working in the music business, and I did some design, not as much as you, more photography. But when I was doing design, when you are in control of the images and the design, the cohesiveness and the theme or um, continuity really comes through. And even when I was just doing photography alone, I was amazed that artists were surprised that I wanted to hear the music because I guess a lot of people didn't do that. I know you did that and I had to do that because you got to get a feel for the person that you're trying to represent, like you said, visually to match what they do audibly. Yes, that's incredibly accurate. That is why I I did it. And in the course, I turned into a huge fan, a huge fan of all of the musicians that I designed for. So that broadened my musical horizons, which was great. Let's talk about if we can remember, because I'm not quite sure I can't pinpoint it exactly where and when and through whomever we met. But I know that you came into the fold with the magazine and at a great time because eventually we started going out of print and going online and you designed our website, you updated our website and you, you really moved us forward in the technology world that was rapidly changing and still is. That was a great time. It was what it, I call early Nashville for me when I first moved here. And um, I had been here quite a while. It was really hard to break into the design business here at that time because there had just been a recession of sorts and no one was hiring. The reason that I had come here, of course, is because I had worked at Hatch Showprint and fell in love with the town and decided to move here. So I quit my other job, which was being a web designer in Cincinnati, and I traveled around the U.S. for three months, and then I moved here. So I would say from January of that year until September, I had hardly any work because I didn't know anybody. And, you know, no one wants to take a chance on someone that they've never really met. And then one of the ad firms here hired me to do a job. And as soon as I started 
working for them and had one job from them under my belt, it was like the door busted open. And then, well, yes, yes, you can come work for us. So that made it really great. But in that interim, I didn't know many people. I wasn't doing much work. And I had seen, I believe in the scene, the Nashville scene, there was an advertisement saying volunteer to help with the Starvey Awards, which were awards for um, artists who weren't as well known at the time. And I thought, wow, I'll go volunteer in something artistic and that would be a great way to meet people. So I did. And I called the number for censored, which, you know, I thought was going to some big important office, which turned out to be your garage. <laughs> and um, you guys weren't really there during working hours because I'm sure you guys had jobs, but I finally got a hold of somebody and they were, they told me to show up at the bell court at a certain time. And I walked in and met Jeff, your really good friend and mine later. Yeah. I mean, that, I guess that was the very first one. No, no, I'm sorry. The first one was at Exit Inn, and then we did two at the Belcourt. Which one did you come into, the first or second one at the Belcourt? It seems like it was 2002, 2001. I don't rightly remember. It was a long time ago. <laughs> but yeah, it must have been. I bet it was 2002. I would guess. I think the last one was 2004, so it might have been the first one. But either way. You you came into the fold, and we had a really great group of people. I mean, my whole life was that magazine, everything that evolved around it, and I had this great group of people with you included, and of course, Jeff, my best friend from college, and Hayden, and, and just, it kept going on, and we just kept getting more and more cool people, and, you know, a lot of people give me a lot of credit, but, you know, it couldn't have been done without the basic core 10 people, because it was just too much to, to do alone. Yeah, it was a great time, but um, we were really lucky to have you in the fold, and you, like I said, you really helped us out with the website. And uh, kept us moving a little bit forward, a little longer than we would have if we'd stayed in print. And you guys are my entree into a big friend group, which I still talk to you guys today. I had a beer with Hayden just last weekend at his fire. And um, I just sat down with Brecca not too long ago for a girls night. That's awesome. So I have a question. You were in Cincinnati when you moved here, but you're from Austin, right? Yeah, this is a good point. I was, I was in design school. And uh, I had I had met someone and I was dating them. They lived in Cincinnati. Uh, I spent my last semester of art school in Italy. And then I moved to Cincinnati where my boyfriend at the time lived. And that's how I'm actually from Texas by way of Cincinnati to here. I was just going to stop by in Nashville and check it out for a couple of years on my way back to Texas. Uh, and I ended up staying a lot longer. <laughs> It kind of has that effect on people. I was going to move here for five years and assist other photographers because back then it was the system. Now I was going to move to a real city as a photographer. Now, of course, it's a real city now, but um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's changed a lot. Tell me about some of the programs that you used and transferred into. I know I started with, you know, Quark for the magazine and we moved on to other things at some point. I know, you know, there's always something new like InDesign, which helped bring all those things into the same program. And you, you can tell us more about this because I kind of lost track because I stepped back and let you and Jeff and Stacey Vereen do all that kind of stuff. Sure. Well, I actually started with PageMaker, which um, people call RageMaker. Oh yeah, PageMaker. I believe that was the first layout program there was. And uh, then I actually worked more in Cork by the time I moved here. And then InDesign followed after that. 
So um, there was something called Corel Draw for a while, but I never got into that. I was an Apple girl, did Illustrator and Photoshop. But the good thing about InDesign was that you could bring, you could import illustration, Illustrator and Photoshop files into it, right? And you could, I think you could, it would update in the design if you changed it in the other program. Is that correct? Uh, I believe so. Like um, Adobe, well, Adobe was Aldis before it was Adobe or Adobe bought Aldis. And then I believe Corel Draw, I don't even know if that was ever made for a Mac. I think it could have been a PC based program, but I'm not sure. But yeah, you could you could kind of change things and open it up into an Adobe program so you could work with it. So that's more of the desktop design stuff um, for print. Yes. But tell us about the other side because I, that's, I never even touched the uh, web design side. Web design, that was Dreamweaver at the time. And I had also taken a coding class, but basically you could design a website and Dreamweaver would write the code for it in the background. So it allowed people who were graphic artists and not coders to make beautiful things because it kind of generated the code for you while you arranged it the way you wanted it to look in a sense. Tell me more about the Starvies and what your impression was and, and, and what, what it was like then because you know I'd been involved in it for so long it's hard to look at it from an outside perspective because I, I never had that. I showed up at the Bell Court, met with Jeff and asked him what I could do and he put me to work doing whatever that was. I believe at the time, Stoney DeVille was doing the sound. Oh, yeah, that's right. And so I helped. And then after the show, I got to meet everyone. And it was it was awesome. It was like a whole big group of you. A lot of you had gone to school together. And so it was a ready-made friend group. I dug in with both heels and gave you all my skills. Yeah, it was a very great group of people. And it was seemed to be like the perfect time, but the um, the awards themselves. I've never done theater, but it, it felt like that. The first one it took us about seven months to plan, and every year it got maybe down to like four or five months. But you spend all this time, and it's over in three hours, and it was such a high. And then it was like, oh my god, now what do I do with my life? It was so bizarre. Yes, and at some point we moved more to the website than the show, and that's really the part I believe where I came in when we were doing the whole magazine online. Yeah, that really did save us. And then previous to that, um, Stacey Vereen and Mike Butte came in and they helped kind of give a, the design a facelift. So we had several different phases, which was really cool. Yes, and then I remember when I started, we did a lot of cool new stuff like yard flicks. Uh, we had prom, uh, things of that nature to kind of add to the whole multimedia experience where we were having our interviews online, but we were having in-person meetups in backyards to show documentaries from beginning filmmakers. And I believe at that time, that was the first year they had that contest where you had to write a five minute movie. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Just so people know that I don't even know if it's still happening, but for a short amount of time, they came to Nashville, they traveled around the, the globe, actually, and they put on something called the 48-Hour Film Festival. So you have 48 hours to do everything. So you get your, your genre, uh, a line, a 
character name, probably about five different things. And then you have 48 hours to, to write it, shoot it, edit it and deliver it. And it was really cool. And I remember we did that probably four years and we won best film one year, but it was a really cool thing. I don't have the time and energy to do that anymore, but it was really awesome. If it still exists, if anybody's a filmmaker, you should definitely look into it. It was super fun. So what are you doing now? My goodness. So I, after I left you guys, I kept designing and I got really, you know, as our careers bloomed and we went off and rocketed into whatever we were going to do next, I moved into package design and I did a lot of album packaging and I was fortunate enough to work with an artist. The design that I did for her got nominated for a Grammy and that was exciting. And that kind of really lit my inspiration up after that. So I designed and I did some guitar work where I decorated people's guitars for photo shoots and things of that nature. I did stage wear where you, yeah, I did like my own look with studs and other kinds of accessories. That was really fun. I dressed people for plays. I took acting classes and I got certified as a yoga teacher, uh, went on all kinds of trips. I did Machu Picchu and really did a lot of self-exploration and learning all different kinds of different skills. I took classes in foraging because I thought that it would be a good skill to have, just in case there's an apocalypse. <laughs> foraging, foraging is where you go outside and you can locate plants and other flora if it is edible. So if you need to, you can eat what's outside. So I learned how to identify edible plants and what they were good for, not only in a culinary sense, but also a medicinal sense. Then I got interested in growing things and I became a master gardener through the Davidson County Ag Extension Service, which was fascinating. It was a three month course and it was the most fascinating course I'd ever taken in my life. But they taught you all kinds of things to do with growing from seeds to soil, to pruning, to pesticides, to organics, to pest management, all kinds of things. And then uh, at some point I got a boyfriend and we decided to start a farmer's market booth where we were, would sell the items we were growing in our backyard garden. I bought a house that's maybe a mile as the crow flies from downtown and we have a little urban homestead with chickens and gardens and a tiny greenhouse, mushroom logs. We have a lot of fruit trees now. He pickles, he pickles cucumbers. He is the pickle king of Nashville <laughs> and those are called kickles. And we do a lot of that now. And then we had a baby and she entered the fold. So my mom is a master gardener. I don't know as much about it. Obvious as awesome. Obviously as either one of you, but I was going to ask you, cause I know I came over at one point and you had like a couple of chickens. Now, how many types of animals do you have in your yard now? Right now we just have seven chickens, but at one time, we had, a, we had some rabbits. At the beginning of COVID, we had rescued a rabbit that was being mistreated. And it was the most amazing rabbit ever. It was small when we got it, but 
grew to be very large, it would stay in our yard and it wouldn't leave. And its name was Everest. My daughter named it. And it was in the process of digging a burrow under the driveway to live in when one night it was killed by a hawk, unfortunately, or some other predator. It was bright white. It always slept in a backyard kind of near a swing set and a predator got it, which broke my heart. It was almost like my COVID therapy animal. That's at the time where everybody was very, very isolated and we just spent all time time in our yard and playing with the chickens and the rabbits. And inside we have cats and fish. (laughs) So speaking of forging and COVID, did you figure out how to like grow hemp and make toilet paper? (laughs) You know, I never went and bought toilet paper when the toilet paper craze was going on. We had gotten to go to Costco as a Christmas present. I didn't feel the need. I don't consider toilet paper a survival item. I guess probably because I've done Outward Bound so many times and gone camping for long periods of time before. There are lots of things you can use besides that. I need kippy for my bunghole. I was considering other things, (laughs) survival items, but but not toilet paper. Yeah, maybe pizza, beer, and booze. But no, I don't know how to make toilet paper, but I definitely know what some good substitutes are. Okay, do you want to share? Sure, happy to share. Uh, I don't know if you know what the plant lamb's ear is, but it's very soft leaves. It has tiny little white soft hairs on it. That makes excellent toilet paper. It's softer than normal toilet paper. But honestly, any kind of green leaf, except for poison ivy or sumac, of course, you can use. Uh, A nice smooth rock is kind of a good thing that you can use to... um, to wipe with or if you can find if you're near a river a nice smooth stick (laughs) just to to run down there to soak up things and I hope that's not too graphic but hey it's your body and that's what happens that's what you use I did a three-week multi-environment course once where it was seven days of whitewater rafting seven days of mountain climbing and seven days of desert hiking and we didn't have toilet paper the whole time So you got really good at finding things that would be soft and effective. Right. Maybe a dog's tail. Mm, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, if the dog ran away and started wagging its tail on someone, that could be catastrophic. But there's options, people. There's bandanas. There's all kinds of things that you can wash. I, I just never did the whole toilet paper stock up. I actually wish they would make toilet paper the natural color that it is and not that bleached white because it's so bad for the environment. I need kippy for my bunghole. The processing it goes through just to look all white and clean isn't worth the the damage that it does. To the environment. Yes. Well, you mentioned using a stick and we'll move on from this quickly, but my wife did two different stints on the Appalachian Trail and (laughs) When she was doing a lot of training and research, that was one of the things she's like, I'm not using a stick. I'm not going to use a stick. It's definitely easier to use a stick when you're doing like a river rafting expedition because those sticks are, you know, soft. They've been polished by the water and then they come up on the shore as driftwood. I've done, I did three years straight of section hiking the AT during the summer. So um, you definitely don't want to carry around your own toilet paper because you want every single ounce of your pack weight to be water or food or something that you really like. In my case, I had to carry a lot of duct tape around my water bottle because my feet always got torn up no matter what I did. 
and duct tape is a great thing to wrap around your feet when you have blisters, believe it or not. I think I used pine needles and leaves a lot on the AT, but never ever discount the effectiveness of a nice smooth rock if you can find it. We were hiking the um, LeConte up in the Smokies one time and I had cheap uh, hiking shoes on and my sole came off and I found another hiker that was more experienced and I duct taped my foot and it worked for the trip. Duct tape is one of my favorites. It's awesome. And that's the tip. Like you a lot of duct tape around your water bottle. So you'll always have some on your trip. And that way you don't have to take a big heavy roll. I also like gaff tape, not necessarily hiking, but just in general life. I use gaff tape for so much, but it's so expensive, but I love it. It is. And if people don't know what that is, I was introduced to it through photography because you put your mark down like for acting or photography and you know you have your mark that you hit or you can wrap it around equipment and it doesn't leave nearly as much if any residue such as like duct tape does. Yes, it's strong. You can rip it. You don't need scissors and it doesn't leave residue. I mean, what more can you want out of tape? It's awesome. And it comes in colors. It does. And that's, that's uh, useful too. Exactly. I went through a, a duct tape wallet phase where I was making a whole lot of different things out of duct tape. That was before I knew the wonder of gaff tape. But I don't think you could make a wallet out of gaff tape and make it pay just because it's so expensive. Yes, it is. It definitely is. I think you might have made me one of those wallets at one point. Oh, I'm sure I did. It was my thing for a while. Yeah. You mentioned you were doing volunteer work a lot now. Tell us about that. Yes. So uh, once I had a baby, I didn't have the time to focus on doing creative projects as much. The, the kind of artist that I am, I like to work on something for eight to 20 hours straight. I really like to immerse myself in the creativity during the project because I think that's when you do your best work. It's almost like you can feel inspiration coming in the top of your head and flowing out of your hands. It's, it's a magical feeling. It's why I still design to this day. But when you have a baby, it's hard to get into a project and be able to work long amounts of time on it all at once because you're doing feedings and other parenting type duties. And that lasts for quite a while. So I was feeling like I really need to do something to occupy my mind because I'm not getting to work or design. And it just felt really weird. It was the first time in my life that I hadn't worked. So one of my things with design had always kind of been that it, it made things beautiful, but I didn't know that much that it really helped. So I wanted to do something at this point in my life that did help people. So I thought about it for a while and decided that an area where I could make an impact by myself is that is with literacy. I had heard the statistics that if a child isn't up to grade level in their reading skills by the end of third grade, it will affect them all through high school and beyond. So I decided that I could give books to kids that needed them. And I picked that age group, kindergarten through fourth, because they're at the vulnerable age. And also, they can't really, like teens, they can't drive themselves to the library. 
they don't have as much access as older kids do. They might not know how to use the library at their school. They're still pretty young. So I took donations of books and other media from people and took them to McKay's and got the credit and bought children's books with them. And I went to all of our, all the local schools in my area and would give them a book for every child so that they, each child got a book before either Christmas break or spring break or summer break. Summer is where the reading slide happens. And that just means that kids will lose their skills over the summer if they don't practice reading or, or have things to look at. What's well, interesting, when I was in seventh and eighth grade, we had a huge reading list for the summer. And it was something I was really not happy about. But I read more books in those two summers than I probably read in the last five years. So it was really great to be able to do that. Of course, I was fortunate. My parents were school teachers and um, they were very involved in my life, but um, that's awesome that you got involved in something like that because it is something that I probably took for granted that a lot of people don't have access to. You would be surprised how many kids not far from you have never owned their own book. These are things that I started finding out when I started doing my, it was the book fairy. I just called it the book fairy because I would, you know, drop these books off and then disappear. But, you know, we have Dolly Parton who does the Dolly Parton Reading Library, which is amazing, where every kid in Tennessee from age zero to five gets a free book a month until they age out of the program. And I definitely took advantage of that with my daughter. And that's one reason why I started giving books K through fourth, because that's where the imagination library left off. And so I wanted to kind of do something for the next age, next age group up. And it was great. I probably gave away about 3,500 books to area schools. And I learned a lot about kids' books. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm, I still have a lot of my old kids' books, but, you know, they're old. Probably half of them you can't, you know, produce or give out or let anybody read anymore. But, you know, times are changing. It's true. But there are still some good classic favorites out there that I read that my daughter loves. Give me an example. Hands, hands, fingers, thumb. Oh, yeah. Dum diddy, dum diddy, dum, dum, dum. And we're about to play Word Beat. Word Beat. Word Beat. It's word association. I'm going to give you a word. Whatever comes to your mind, you just let me know what that is. Okay. All right. You ready? Mm-hmm. Clowns. Fear. China. White. Slut shaming. Wrong. Country music. Fun to dance to. Sloppy Joes. Juicy. Graphic design. Me. Hard liquor. Tequila. Lady Gaga. Awesome clothes. Weddings. Fun. Pizza. Fennel seed. Cartoons. Animation. Merkin. <laughs> Our prom at Censored. <laughs> Gardens. Growing. Chickens. Thelma and Louise. Those are your first two? Mm-hmm. Yep. Interior design. Minimalist. Horror films. Nail-biting. Taco Bell. Delicious. Saucy. 
Grab ass. Ugh, asshole. Nickelback. I couldn't name a song. Canada. Freedom. Cowboy boots. Heel clicking. Vegetarian. Good if you know how. Beastie Boys. Ugh, no sleep till Brooklyn, y'all. Censored Magazine. Best time. All right. Now here comes the random questions. What would you do if you were the only survivor in a plane crash? I would decide not to freak out first and breathe. Then I would try to find survivors. I guess I've decided at this point there aren't any. I would try to get the attention of someone to come help me. I would try to find things in luggage that would help me do that. I feel like I'm on Lost. I just feel like I'm just saying the whole first season of Lost. <laughs> By the way, it's kind of ironic because I watched majority of the seasons of Lost, but then I stopped watching and I was literally lost and I couldn't go back. <laughs> Russell's watching it for the second time recently, so I think that's why it's on the brain. It, it was really good. Mm -hmm. Very good. I thought the ending was sucked, but whatever. <laughs> it's hard to end something that goes on that long so well, you know? It's very true. All right, next question. What is the funniest thing that has happened to you recently? Recently. What about your daughter? What has she or Russell done that's funny, which should be every day, I'm sure. Yeah, but that's so boring. It's just like the first time she said a cuss word, which was pretty funny. Took her to visit some friends in Texas the other day, and they were taking her around their property, riding on four-wheelers and making a fire and stuff like that and she kept saying stuff like let's roll and let's get this party started <laughs> so that was pretty interesting is it one of those i learned it from listening to you mom she's learned it from her father when she when they started stoking the fire and making it big she goes let's get this party started and uh when they strapped her into the four-wheeler she said let's roll she's five <laughs> How would you sell hot chocolate in Florida in the summer? I would say it was infused with 24 karat gold and that 24 karat gold was antibacterial and antiviral. And it was actually a big health boost. And then you could shit a gold brick. That's a good point. Yes. We should be on the marketing team together. <laughs> okay. If you had a time machine, would you travel to the future or back to the past? Why and when? To the past. Why and when? I would love to knock the gun out of the hand of the man who shot John Lennon. And I would love to go back to when they had those huge feasts and castles. And I would like to eat at one to see if the food was really, really good, or maybe they didn't know how to use salt, or it was actually rotten, no one knew it. Or the food was actually the best ever because it was absolutely unadulterated with any kind of man-made pesticides or fertilizers or, or what, would have, what would affect it these days. That's interesting. I would think that any food that was considered a feast back then would be delicious no matter what because it wasn't for everyone. Right. That's a good point. What part of the human face is your favorite? Mouth. Why? Because... It is extremely expressive. It can tell you what someone is 
thinking with the little movements that it makes, even when it's not talking. And it hides teeth, which are also fascinating to me. It's also a very intimate body part. That's a good point. Yes, that as well. I used to I used to love to kiss when I was in college. I was a mud queen. Now you don't like it. I'm married. <laughs> so I kiss one person, which is great. Um, but you know, back then there was a, a big variety, I guess. So you still like kissing, it's just back then it was the variety. Yes, the unexpectedness, you know, just to kiss someone just to see if they would. It was more about human nature, I think, than anything. Yeah. It was like a, a big connect, a point of connection. My college was very kissing oriented. So it was just something that everybody did. And it was just fun to connect with someone in that way. And then walk away and never see them again. Very innocent, a very innocent time. That and I think the spontaneity. That as well, yes. All right. What is your favorite drunk food? Taco Bell. What is the longest time you've gone without showering? No, Lord, probably a month. What were you doing? Hiking the AT. Oh, well, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, if I get past like three days, I'm like, oh, I so feel so bad about myself. Okay, do you have any reoccurring dreams? Yes. Please share. Do you ever get, I guess they're like anxiety dreams. I think I have a lot of different ones. There's there's the one where it used to be I was trying to call someone and it was an emergency, but when I was small, there were rotary phones. So I used to have the dream where I was trying to dial someone's number on a rotary phone and I kept messing up and having to start over and I could never call. And then it, the dream changed to push button phones and I've had it recently with cell phones. Isn't that crazy? Wow. That is interesting. Yes. I don't think I've had a reoccurring dream. Well, like I don't know, reoccurring. I've had one dream twice, which I can tell you about. When I was a child, I had a reoccurring dream that I was on swing set and that I would fall off. It was weird because in slow motion, I was like straight. I wasn't like falling like normal people fall. And I'd wake up and I'd realize I'd fallen out of the bed or off the couch and I was on the floor. Whoa. Yeah, that's crazy. Like you fell straight forward instead of down to the ground in your dream. Yeah, it was like, well, I was like head over heel, but I was just like, it's bored. Just it was very bizarre. That is bizarre. But even a stranger dream. So I broke my toe kicking a wall in my sleep. And then I did it again later, having a different dream. Oh my gosh. But I was dreaming that I was a scientist, which is so far-fetched, it's hilarious. And I was studying rabid monkeys. And we had a team of people. And we hadn't been able to put them together yet, but we thought we were at the point where we could and control the outcome and they wouldn't freak out and go rabid, which meant in my dream, their teeth come out and they have these talons come out of their hands and they just get really aggressive and just kill everybody. So we were wrong and uh, they went crazy and they started killing people. And, you know, I could see my colleagues getting murdered. So I ran this closet and I shut the door. And the monkey was grabbing the bottom of the door, kind of like a cat grabs the bottom of the door, trying to shake it open. So I was kicking at its hand, trying to like, get off, get off. And I woke up and I had kicked the wall, broke my toe, but I didn't know I'd broken my toe. And then I went to the bathroom to like, look at it. And we were leaving town the next day and I kicked <laughs> this black suitcase, which was the same toe. 
And then we went to California and we hiked and rode bikes and came back. And a friend of mine who's a nurse, she said, oh my God, what did you do? You need to get to the hospital. And I didn't go to the hospital. I went to a clinic and they gave me a piece of foam and said, stay off of it, which was impossible. But my dad came in town a different time. He was in town both times and I had a separate dream. And I kicked the wall again and broke my toe again. Oh my gosh. Okay. I don't know why that wacky injury reminds me of something, but who was the very tall blonde guy that hung out with us? He's since moved to Austin and I love him to death. I just can't think of his name right now. Cousin Ken. Cousin Ken's. Do you remember Cousin Ken's injury? <laughs> I'm not telling that story. <laughs> yeah, weird injuries. But I do have a story I can tell about him. He was in a parking lot. Uh, he was working and this woman, she was trying to change her tire or something like that. An older woman, he came out to help and he scared her and she, she maced him in the face. And he was on the ground, his eyes were burning and someone saw this and called the police and they <sighs> put him on his, on his chest and handcuffed him because they thought that he was trying to rob this old lady. Wow. Only, only cousin Ken. He's about the least intimidating dude you'll see. He just has permagrin on his face. I love him. It's like happy guy. I can't imagine anyone being afraid of him, but that's a great story. Isn't that funny? I'm sure he tells, tells it better because he was actually there. Yes, for sure. But I mean, as far as, as far as other dreams, like there's one where all of my teeth are cracking and then they just start falling in pieces out of my mouth. That one's pretty gross. It's weird. There's the one where you're. Because sometimes I have dreams like that. It's because I grit my teeth at night. Yeah, I, that could be. And then one where I'm driving my car and pieces of it just start falling off until all I have is the steering wheel. So my theory on that would be that things fall apart around you, but you stay in control could be hey have you had the one where you're scared and you're trying to scream so hard but no sound comes out so you're just like <sighs> you can't and it's bad no but that's my favorite thing to ever see kids do when they get hurt or scared or whatever they open their mouth and nothing comes out and it's just big pause and you know it's coming and it just builds and builds and goes Cracks me up. I don't. <laughs> you're so sadistic. <laughs> but yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. No, I like my brother used to love to see me do that. And he said, I sound like a fire engine. But uh, I think the last one is where you're running from someone and you shut the door and you're scrabbling with the lock, trying to lock it. And you just can't lock it. And you're trying so hard because the person's about to bust through the door. Scrabbling, scrambling. Scrambling? Scra scrambling, scrabbling at the lock. I'm pretty sure scrabbles. I don't have a theory on that one. If you were a Spice Girl, which one would you be? I don't know that much about the Spice Girls, but they all seem fun. I would be any one of them. All right. What is your favorite record, one of each? One from the 80s and one from the 90s? Well, I'm a lady of the 80s. It is hard to name one album. I'll name five that I like. Okay. Black Celebration by Depeche Mode. Squeezes Greatest Hits. Yaz upstairs at Eric's. I stopped listening to music as much in the 90s. Oh my gosh, your music collection. 
Remember when I came over to your house and I made three mixed tapes out of all the CDs that you had from the 90s? Three mixed tapes out of everything that you said. And I still have them and I still listen to them because they're great. I still have every mixed tape I ever made. I have the first mixed tape I ever made. I have about 120 mixed tapes. Did you really make a tape or was it a mixed CD? Yeah, it was what you did for friends back then. And if I made them for boyfriends, um, I would make sure that I got them back if we broke up because I knew that I would value that mixtape much more than they would in the future. And sure enough, I still have them. <laughs> and I have every mixtape anyone ever made for me. So being Music City, what were some of your favorite bands that you saw? Of course, Southern Culture on the Skids. I got to do the thing where you get up on stage and you feed boys fried chicken off the tip of your boot. I can't even remember what song it was about, but I got to be the, chick the, the food feeder off the tip of the cowboy boot, which was great. That was a good show. Every single nostalgia 80s band that came back. Oh, 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 the ultimate. I believe it was Halloween and you might've been there. Mini Kiss opened for Here Come the Mummies. That was a great show. So let me ask you a few final questions. First of all, tell us where we can find your work. My old website is still up, actually. You know, when I first moved to Nashville, I was out and about for the first 10 years all the time and met a million people. And I had these really cool business cards and um, I just, you know, I always gave them out. And since then, I still get business from that. It was like the best advertising ever. Someone will say, I have this really cool business card that you gave me and I've been keeping it because it looked cool, but now I actually need a graphic designer. And I thought I would call you. I think once you meet a group of people in Nashville, then it, it's really awesome the way networking works you're just automatically connected to all other kinds of people and your name gets around so if you want to excavate you can actually go see it it's at jamiedesign.com j-a-m-i-d-e-s-i-g-n.com i believe that i designed that website circa 2001 <laughs> so you can see a real piece of web history what are you most proud of creatively I did I did an album package once and the whole thing was a handmade collage the cover of it was actually a lyric booklet every single page literally visually expressed the song that it was about that was the coolest thing I have ever made the other things that I'm proud of creatively, but they're fleeting, like you'd never be able to see them, is when I did a lot of event design and centerpiece design uh, for ballroom dance competitions. So I would just blow it out with the coolest stuff I could think of for table piece center, centerpiece decorations and such. I did a whole shabby chic design where I got live butterflies and I designed little cages that were different for each table. And then at the end, we let the butterflies go. Wow, that sounds amazing and beautiful. When I did my book fairy project, um, 
I love the feeling of being able to help people in a tangible way by helping kids with literacy. It was a completely different feeling from my creative endeavors where, you know, I was making something beautiful. This was actually impacting people's lives in a very direct way. So I started looking for other ways to volunteer and help people. And I ended up hooking up with a community center called Trinity Community Commons. They had been looking for someone to start a farmer's market at their weekly community meal. And since I had been in the East Nashville farmer's market for five or six years, I thought I would go check it out because that's right in my neighborhood. So I went to check this community meal out tray. It was awesome. Basically, they were getting, they were just having a free meal and it was, the food was provided by the National Food Project. They serve a lot of organic food because, you know, they're corporate sponsors with Whole Foods. And so I went to this community meal and the premise was anyone from the neighborhood, anybody could just come in, sit down at a table and share a meal. And it was family style. Of course, a live band because this is Nashville. I sat down with people I had never sat down at a table with in my life from all different kinds of walks of life. That was the first time I'd ever had long conversations with people who lived on the streets, didn't have a home, different cultures, different religious backgrounds. It was just a mixture of the neighborhood. So I fell in love with it and I'm still working for them five years later. Now I'm called the community connector. So I find people in our community right around us with needs and connect them with things that we can do. And then I find people with resources and connect them with people that don't have them. That's really cool. So what is the name of the business or company again? Trinity Community Commons. If you're here in town, please check that out. And I'm glad you found a new and fulfilling way to give back to the Nashville community. Jamie, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. And it's uh, interesting to catch up with you and learn more about what you've been doing. And I'm sure the uh, listeners will be intrigued. Uh, as I described you earlier, uh, extremely talented, uh, eclectic, very interesting, uh, very sweet, and uh, always fun to talk to. Thank you, Trey. Uh, oh, most of the people that I know that are cool to you, as a matter of fact. So I definitely was lucky the day I answered that Starfy call for volunteers. I hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as we did recording it. You can reach us at ftsunashville at gmail.com. And now we have an Instagram account, Feeding the Senses Uncensored. You can see my photography work at Trey Mitchell Photography on Instagram and Facebook. I have to thank Damien Horn for his unofficial theme song. As always, feed your senses. Feast on your community's artistic talents. And always, always, always feed your soul. <laughs> it's never too late for tequila. <laughs>